First of all, I want to thank you for your excellent attention, your hospitality. This has been a short visit, but a very delightful visit for us. Um, you know, four, three messages in five hours is pretty concentrated. And I was thinking of John Wesley, who customarily preached three sermons a day and five on Sunday. But I'm not a John Wesley. I want to read you what I put in my Bible, a little clipping. John Wesley traveled 250,000 miles on horseback, averaging 20 miles a day for 40 years, preached 40,000 sermons, wrote 400 books, and knew 10 languages. At 83, he was annoyed that he could not write more than 15 hours a day without hurting his eyes. And at 86, he was ashamed that he could not preach more than twice a day. And he complained in his diary that there was an increasing tendency to lie in bed till 5.30 in the morning. So, <laughs> so he obviously had more energy than some of us have. I want you to look on page four, and we're going to sing another Lowell Mason song because I want to talk shortly about him. Uh, it's pretty obvious probably by now that I really appreciate the vision that he had and what he tried to accomplish. And this is another song that's just very simple. I think we can sing it right off, but it's so delightful. The text is, is rich. <clears throat> uh, so let's just go ahead and sing it. No, masters, uh, page four or the back of page three. Master, speak thy servant. I didn't tell you which one. No, okay. Master, speak thy servant heareth. That is a fundamental rule of song leading. You should give the number and the title of the text. Uh, because sometimes you don't hear the number, and then if they at least say what the song is, then you know where to look. So I violated my own rule. All right, let's try this again. Do master speak thy servant here waiting for thy gracious word longing for thy voice that cheereth master let it now be
What I would like to speak about today is preserving the new song. We've done Sing the New Song, a, a biblical uh, examination as to what is involved in the resource of the song. We did profile the new song with, a, with a, a, some ideas or, or some, uh, a picture of what a good song has that makes it endure. We did uh, learn, teach the new song, which encouraged everybody in his own sphere, in the home, in the church, to, uh, to be a leader, uh, to, to help this cause along. And now we want to talk about preserve the new song. <clears throat> we are the heirs to a priceless property that has been in the making for 4,000 years. It has gathered up the best expressions ever uttered on this earth. It is truly a collection of literature unrivaled by any other. And it would be, un, be an unspeakable tragedy if this inherited collection were to be lost. But that's exactly what's happening. This priceless 4,000-year-old treasure of wisdom is being rudely pushed aside to make way for the exclusive use of songs written in the last 50 years, or probably less. The enormity of what is happening can only be understood by an exposure to the rich heritage that is being lost before our very eyes. Now, it would be an impossibility in this short time, and I'm planning to quit at five till. That'll be 45, about 40 minutes. Uh, and then you can ask your questions. So I, I will stop this at five till. I promise you that. So it'd be impossible to do a complete survey in such a short time. So we will focus on a few of the ancient hymns. I'd like to talk about them, uh, the story behind them, or at least the history behind them, and somewhat uh, the meaning that those songs have to help you understand that this heritage cannot be lost. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the gospel song, and I think here's the place to do it. The gospel song originated in the United States. It is the unique contribution of America to the hymnody of our churches. Uh, it's a little bit of a questionable contribution, I must admit, uh, but let me tell you how it happened. It happened because in the 1800s, the 19th century, there were three things happened in this country, two of which were unique to this country. One of them originated somewhere else, but they happened back to back. The first one was the Methodist camp meeting, which occurred at the beginning of the 1800s. And that was unique to this country, the Methodist camp meeting. Now you have to imagine what they had. They had a, a, a large groups of people, sometimes thousands of people. In the early 1800s, many of those people were illiterate. Uh, they couldn't read music. They couldn't, many of them couldn't even read a text. And they had no songbooks, at least at the beginning. And so what kind of song do you have to have? Well, you have to have a song that is very repetitious, so it's easily learned and remembered. And then you have to have a refrain because you have a mass meeting and you want to create sort of a mass spirit. And besides, the people who can't sing the, the verse part of the song can at least join in on the chorus, on the refrain. So that's the Methodist camp meeting, and it gathered, it, was, it, it basically was con, it wasn't confined to the South, but that's basically where it was. And of course, you had the influence of the blacks and, and other people in the South. Some of those characteristics of their music uh, crept into this early Methodist camp meeting music. So that's the first thing that happened. If that's the only thing that had happened in the 1800s, probably not very many of those songs would have been written. Uh, they wouldn't have found their way into the hymnals, but that was the beginning. Then after the Civil War, you had the Sunday School Movement falling right on the heels of the Methodist camp. In fact, the Methodist camp meetings were taking place during the Civil War. In the camps, they were having these meetings with the soldiers. After the Civil War, you had the Sunday School Movement, and that originated in England, but it found its basic flowering here in the United States. And again, you have large groups of children who cannot read, certainly can't read music, and often no hymn books. So you have to have the same type of song, lots of repetition, a refrain for the children to join in, even if they can't sing the rest of the song. Right after the Sunday School movement, and there were hundreds of these songs written by people like uh, Bradbury and, and, and those folks who were writing Sunday School songs. And then right on the heels of that, you have the Moody Sankey mass revivals. And again, you have large groups of people, no songbooks. Uh, so you need a song, again, with lots of repetition, with a refrain. The general definition of a gospel song is a song that has a refrain. That doesn't completely describe the song, but that's, that's, if, you, if a song has a refrain, you can start to assume it's a gospel song. So now you have three movements that happen in this country right back to back, and people were writing songs for these the whole way through. So you, so you ended up with thousands of these kinds of songs 
And so many people were singing them over such a long period of time, they found their way into the hymnals. Now, if you look at English hymnals up to about 50 years ago, you will find almost none of these gospel songs. They're unique to this country. And uh, <clears throat> so then you had people like Lowell Mason who saw what was happening, Lowell Mason and Thomas Hastings, and they said, this, this can't happen. This, this, the, the, the music that we've had in our church is the stately, deep, uh, uh, thought-provoking hymns that we were singing are going to be lost. And so they, they started this movement to produce better hymns for the church, new hymns that were better than the gospel songs that were being written. Now, what do I have to say about the gospel song? The gospel song is here to stay, and you would be a, a, really a little bit unrealistic to try to eliminate them. And besides, I don't want to eliminate them. Great is thy faithfulness, to God be the glory. Uh, when peace like a river. These are good songs, but <clears throat> they're the better ones. There are songs that aren't as good as those, the real jumpy ones, the ones that are really light, the ones that are really repetitious and don't really say an awful lot. So <clears throat> what I say is, Let's use the gospel song. Let's try to use the best ones, and let's use them with discretion. Let's, rep, let's, let's recognize them for what they are. And by all means, with that understanding, never let them replace the other hymns. See, if we're not careful, I can show you hymnals. Uh, I won't name them. I'm not trying to put anybody's hymnal down. That's just almost all gospel songs. And children will grow up. A whole generation will grow up and never sing, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. My faith looks up to the, they just simply, those songs would basically be lost. And that's a tragedy, that we're going to lose hymns, and I'm going to give you some of the stories and some of the background. It would be a tragedy to lose this tremendous wealth of hymnody that we have for these other songs. And so let's use the gospel song, but let's not use them to the exclusion of the others, or let's not even use them more than we use the others. Let's try to make sure we emphasize these better hymns and, and so that they're never lost and our people learn to appreciate them. Now, <clears throat> having said that, let's talk about some of the hymns. Turn to number 55 in your hymnal. <clears throat> this is the oldest hymn we have in the hymnal, with the exception of perhaps the liturgy of St. James. We're not sure who actually wrote that originally. This is Shepherd of Tender Youth, written by... Clement of Alexandria. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was an early Christian school teacher in Alexandria, Egypt, and uh, <clears throat> he was trying to teach people that had come into the church from a very wicked Greek background that had all kinds of wicked habits and whatever. So he wrote this book as a Christian school teacher. He wrote this book to instruct heathen converts how to regulate their lives as Christians, how to remake the whole pattern of their life from the lascivious and immoral environment they'd come from in Alexandria. And at the end of the book, he included this poem entitled, Bridal of Colts Untamed. That was the original title of this song. So he saw these heathen as, as, as untamed colts that needed to have a bridle put on them. And this whole poem, it was a long poem. We don't nearly have all of it. In fact, we don't really even have the poem. The person who did this translation, you'll notice his name is there. Uh, well, yeah, it doesn't give his name. I think I have it here. Yes, his name was Henry Martin Dexter. He was a congregational minister. He read that poem and he said, look, there, there's something here that I, I want to, to pass on but this poem is too long. So what he did is he took parts of it to try to give you the flavor of what the poem was like. This was the first stanza to the poem. Bridle of colts untamed, wing of unwandering birds, sure helm of ships, shepherd of royal lambs, assemble thy simple children to praise holily to him guilelessly with innocent mouths, Christ the guide of children. So this is a praise to the one who brings control to untamed uh, passions. And I want you to notice it, it celebrates Christ with a whole bunch of names. I think in the total poem there were something like 21 original titles that it gave to Christ. But I want you just to notice, I think we have about eight or nine of them here. Shepherd, look down in the second stanza, Holy Lord, all submissive, subduing word. Third stanza, great high priest, guide, go down to the second score, healer, staff, song, Christ of God. Uh, I think I have most of them there. But this is a celebration of the person who has the ability to bring untamed colts under control 
and, and make them beautiful people. And so it's a celebration to Christ. Let's just sing a couple of the verses so we can uh, go through more of the songs. But uh, that's what this is. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful hymn that I, I don't ever want to see this hymn to be lost. <clears throat> Domi, let's sing verses 1 and 5. Shepherd of tender youth, guiding in love and truth through devious ways. Christ our triumphant King, we come thy name to sing. Hither our children bring to shout thy praise. Let's sing first too because it celebrates the all-subduing power of Christ to make something beautiful out of something that was wicked. Do me ready, thou art a holy Lord, the all-subduing word, healer of strife. a tragedy if that hymn were lost. Take your papers and the first one on the first side, Lord Jesus, think of me. This is another song written back in those early years by Synesius of Cyrene. Yes, I think I have that right. Synesius of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene was the seat of a Greek colony in North Africa. And it was a flourishing center of Greek culture and wealth in A.D. 100. But this song was written in A.D. 400. And those of you who know history know that the Roman Empire fell just 76 years later. But at this time, it was starting to totter. And this man was a philosopher, an orator, and he was chosen to be Bishop of Cyrene. But in his lifetime, the Goths and the other desert uh, tribes were beginning to invade the kingdom, and it was beginning to fall, and he was the last great citizen of Cy Cyrene. Now, these are not the words of confidence that we had in the other hymn. This is an old man at the end of his life. He died just a few years after this, and he had run the whole gamut of life, and here he was, an old man. His city was about to be run by, overrun by barbarians. His wife has died. All his sons have died by the plague. The whole fabric of society is disintegrating, and the Western Empire is tottering to its fall. And the future looks horribly uncertain to this man. Here's this old man. He has nothing left, and uh, he has one thing to look to, and that's God. And his only recourse is to throw himself totally on the mercy and love of Christ. And in this song, he expresses what every Christian desires, especially at the end of his life. Forgiveness, control of passions, inner purity, loyalty, quiet, sure guidance, and a future life of light and joy. So when you sing this, remember this is an old man facing the uncertainties we're facing in our society. Our society is tottering to its fall too, and it looks, to me, the future looks very frightening. And uh, it could be. I think it's a very exciting time to live. But these are the sentiments that I think all serious Christians have at a time like this in our society. So let's, uh, let's sing this. It's probably not familiar to you, so we'll sing all the verses, not very long. Uh, it's a, just a tremendous expression of the, the, uh, the desires of a godly person in the midst of a dis disintegrating society. Do so, it's probably a new tune, so follow me. Do so, Lord Jesus, think on me. And make me pure within. Lord Jesus, think on me with many a care oppressed. Let me thy loving servant. 
don't have copies of this paper these papers raise your hands uh, could the ushers can we gather up a few extra ones along the aisle here and pass them out where they're needed uh, if that can be done all right now I would like to look at uh, the next uh, on the same sheet O splendor of God's glory bright you will notice on the left that this is written back in those early centuries by a man by the name of Ambrose of Milan Ambrose of Milan was educated in law, <clears throat> and he became an eloquent pleader in the courts. And finally, he was made the governor of northern Italy with his residence in Milan. So this was a very talented administrator of the law. Well, <clears throat> he was living in very stormy times. The first heresies had come into the church. There was a tremendous conflict between the Orthodox and the Arians, who were the her heretics. And the bishop of Milan had been an Arian, and he died. And... Uh, uh, Ambrose knew that there was going to be a riot because both sides would, wanted to appoint the new bishop of the church. So he was only a catechumen in the church. He was being instructed, but he'd never been baptized. And he was planning to join the church, but he was not a, yet a member. He, was not yet, he hadn't yet been baptized. But he was concerned that the city not experience a bunch of bloodshed and violence. So he went down to the center square uh, at the time of this election and the tensions were very high, and he stood up and gave a very eloquent speech that calmed everybody down. And some child in the crowd said, Ambrose for bishop. And the crowd all took up this cry, Ambrose for bishop. Well, he wasn't even a baptized member, so he, he took off and ran and, and hid somewhere. And this is a very, unusual, <laughs> a very unusual way to have church. But anyway, so he ran off and hid, and they finally found him and br brought him back. And he promised that he would do his best as a bishop. So that he was baptized, he sold all his property, he gave all of his money away, and he became a very, very uh, uh, important influence in the church. Now, one of the reasons I included this song in, in this book is because Ambrose was a musician. And up to this time, <clears throat> uh, they sang, as I told you, they sang plain song and chants. Ambrose was the first person to give us what we could call a melody that was metered. Uh, the Ambrosian chant, and it was sung for hundreds of years, and finally Gregory said this is a little bit too much, and so he calmed it down with his Gregorian chants to something a little more sober and, and solemn. But the Ambrosian chant <clears throat> was the first real music that the church had that we would recognize as music, and the credit goes to this man. Now, he wrote this song, O Splendor of God's Glory Bright. He compares the sunshine of Christ at, with, with, the, with the sun, and he talks about it shining in various ways in our lives. And it's just a beautiful comparison, a beautiful analogy that he gives here. And I set it to the tune of uh, Great God Indulge. So I felt that Ambrose deserved a place in my hymn book because of his tremendous contribution both to music and to the church and to uh, the songs that he wrote. So let's uh, sing this one. The, notice in stanza one it says, O light eternal, because see, the, the first heresy... Uh, here in the church was this Arian heresy that said Jesus was a created being. He wasn't eternal with the Father. Having said that, they believed everything else we believe about Christ, but they didn't believe he was eternal. So he has that right there in the first stanza. Eternal being bringing light. And then I just want you to notice as we sing all the different things that he says about the light. 
us all, O splendor of God's glory, bright from light eternal, bringing light, the light of light, white slipping spring, true days of days, illumining verse three, confirm our certainly wouldn't want that replaced by something less. Uh, we're going to have to hurry along here. Would you uh, turn to number um, 434? Now we're taking a big jump to the 1800s. 434 is the song, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Uh, this was written, if you notice, on the left-hand side of the page by George Matheson. George Matheson was a young man who was studying to be a minister, but his eyesight was poor from the day he was born, and by the age of 18, he knew for sure that he was going blind. And one of the tragic things that happened is he was engaged to be married to a very lovely young lady, I'm sure, and when she found out she was going to have a blind husband, she broke off the engagement and he never married. Now, this was a very bitter experience for him, and so this song was written on the eve of his sister's wedding when all of the memories of this bitter experience came back to him to the point where he was unable to attend the family gathering that they had in the evening after the wedding. And he gives his own account of the writing of this song. This is what he says. My hymn was composed in the manse of, an Italian, of Inolin on the evening of June the 6th, 1882. I was at that time alone. It was the day of my sister's marriage and the rest of my family were staying overnight in Glasgow. Something had happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. And we know now it was the, this whole experience with his uh, uh, fiancé. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression rather of having it dictated to me by some inward voice than of working it out myself. I'm quite sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes, and I'm equally sure that it would never received at my hands any retouching or correction or editing. I have no natural gift of rhythm. All the other verses I have written are manufactured articles, but this one came like a dayspring from on high, and I have never been able to gain once more the same fervor in verse. Now, I want you to look at this song based on what I just told you about this man's experience. The crisis in his life was a crisis of love, and so that's what he says. He says, O oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And so what he's picturing here is his life is this turbulent stream that's frustrated. And he says, he pictures this turbulent, useless stream flowing into the ocean where it's swallowed up in something much bigger than itself. And he says, Lord, I, I'm willing to let that happen. I, I'd like to be part of this huge ocean, peaceful, deep, and something much bigger. Second stanza, O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. So now here's another, another picture. He has this torch, this flickering torch that's about to burn out. And he pictures giving it back to its source, which he says in this stanza is the sun. Again, so it can be part of a larger whole. His little torch can be something much more significant. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray. 
that in thy sunshine's glow its day may brighter, fairer be. The third verse is very interesting. O joy that seekest me through pain. Well, that's an interesting statement. How does joy seek someone through pain? That's what he says. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. To me, that's a beautiful stanza. And finally, he says, O cross, the suffering, O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And once he's completely dead, then from, and gives up his pursuit of love, his pursuit of light, his pursuit of joy, he gives all that up, embraces the cross, and then it says, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. A flower comes out of this total surrender, a beautiful flower that shows forth this fadeless splendor of true life. It's just a tremendous testimony uh, of a man who shows how God took a bad experience and transferred it into glory. That's my definition all weekend of salvation. Let's, uh, I don't think we have time to sing the whole thing. Let's sing a couple of the verses. So let's sing verses one and three. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer fuller be. Verse 3. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be O cross that liftest up my head I dare not as to hide from thee I lay in dust life's glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be turn to uh, 304 in the hymnal <clears throat> uh, these songs come out of a rich heritage and it's just to me it's a tragedy if they're lost <clears throat> The writer of this hymn is William Merrill Vores. He was a young school teacher who went to Japan to teach the gospel. And he was passionately committed to non-resistance. And in his teaching of the gospel, he won respect from the Japanese because of that very teaching, the teaching of non-resistance. He decided to, to be, become a Japanese citizen. So he married a Japanese woman and became a Japanese citizen and continued to teach a non-resistant gospel to the, uh, to the good effect among the Japanese. So he was especially grieved when the Japanese entered the war against the United States. But he stayed. He told people, I want to stay because after the war, I want to be here to be an influence on this nation for peace. And so he was a very significant influence after World War II in bringing the United States and, the Japan, and Japan to a respectful and peaceful relationship, which they've had ever since. So this, this is his testimony. Uh, I just wanted you to know what this man's heart was and what he's saying in this song. He's very committed to the peace of God, uh, finally putting an end to all strife. So let's sing just a couple verses of this one. No me, let there be light, Lord God of hosts, let there be wisdom on 
that brought humanity have birth. Let there be deeds instead of both. Verse 4, let woe and waste of warfare cease that useful labor yet may build its homes with love and virtue filled. God give thy wayward children peace. Turn to number 14. <clears throat> this is a very amazing song. This song came out of the 30-year war, which many of the songs in our hymnal came out of that period. If you look, the 30-year the, uh, the war was when the Catholics and the Protestants fought it out <clears throat> to see who was going to control England, uh, Europe. 30 years of war, 1618 to 1648. Those were horrible years. That's when many of your forefathers decided they could not stay in Europe. It was such a horrible war. The Catholics would win, then the Protestants would win, and this war swept back and forth. Some of the towns and villages were destroyed four or five times, and, and people, uh, of course, uh, most of them lost family members. And it, it just was a horrible, horrible, horrible time. Martin Rinkert, who wrote this song, was a pastor of the city of Eilenburg. It was a Lutheran city, but I think the uh, war passed back over, forth over this city seven times during the 30 years. And this man lived the whole way through that period. And uh, it was a walled city. It was one of the few cities that had walls around it. So people fled to this city for safety. And it became so overcrowded that pestilence broke out. And, and most of the people who fled to the city died. This man conducted, through this whole period, an average of 30 funerals per day, including his wife. And uh, <clears throat> finally, it was uh, attacked and conquered by, I think it was a Swedish uh, army, and he demanded a tremendous ransom for the city, which they did not have. And so Martin Rinker fell on his knees with his people and said, God, I won't receive any mercy from man. Please have mercy on us. And the general was so affected by that prayer that he reduced the ransom and the city uh, was able to pay the ransom. So anyway, this song was written out of that horrible experience. Uh, they gathered in their church building with the roof blown off, and they sang this song as uh, his response to all of this. But the thing that's amazing about this song is you don't see any evidence of that tragedy. The only thing you see here is it says in stanza two at the end, and guide us when perplexed. That's his only comment on the horrible experience of the 30-year war. Well, I wanted to tell you what happened at the end of the 30-year war. At the end of the 30-year war, they had fought and fought and fought and killed so many people, but nobody won. So the Catholics and the Protestants sat down and decided to divide up Europe, who, what part would be Catholic, what part would be Protestant. And that was the Peace of Westphalia. And so that's how it ended after all that senseless slaughter. But this man's response to all of those deaths, all those funerals, the death of his wife, and all the tragedy was this song. This is just tremendous. Let's sing it. It'd be a tragedy if this song were lost. <clears throat> Domiso, now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things have done in whom his world rejoices who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our Countless gifts of love, and still is ours today. Oh, may this vouchers gone through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us. And keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next.
Would you turn to 444? <clears throat> this song was written by a young Chicago Baptist pastor who visited the uh, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Have any of you ever? I never visited the cave. Have any of you ever visited Mammoth Cave? None of us have. Well, they tell me that it has 500 miles, estimated 500 miles, of unexplored passageways. Now, this was written in the 1800s. It does not have the name of the author, and I don't have it in my mind either. Um, I, I, I should have been able to say it, but I can't say it. Anyway, he visited this cave in the 1800s. Now, you must remember, the 1800s, there was no electricity. There were no lights in that cave. The only thing that they had to go by was the, was the lantern that the guide carried. And after he got out of the cave and was on his way home, he contemplated what would have happened if a person would have lost sight of that lantern. They'd have wandered in those 500 miles of unexplored passageways and never would have gotten out of the cave alive. So he, he likened this to following Christ. Look what it says. Follow the path of Jesus, walk where his footsteps lead, keep in his beaming, there's that lantern, presence. And how do you do that? By doing everything he tells you to do. Every counsel heed, that's the beaming presence of Christ. Watch while the hours are flying, ready some good to do. Quick while his voice is calling, yield obedience true. It's very interesting that this Baptist pastor had such a focus on obeying the commands of Christ. Cling to the hand of Jesus all through the day and night. Dark though the way and dreary, there's that cave. He will guide you right. Live for the good of others. Helpless, oppressed, and wrong. That's part of following Christ. Lift them from depths of sorrow and his strength be strong. Those are the only two verses he wrote. And nobody knows who wrote the third verse, but when it appeared in our Mennonite hymnal, somebody must have said there, there's one more thing needed yet for this to be an Anabaptist hymn. Take up the cross of Jesus, sharing the shame he bore, self in the world denying. <laughs> this, this is really Mennonite. <laughs> Love the Savior more. And then here's the evangelism. Tell all the world of Jesus, think of their gloom and loss, tell of his great salvation and glory in his cross. It's probably the most Anabaptist hymn we have in our hymnal, and I love the story behind it. So when we're singing it, Think of that cave and that lantern. On the second verse, let's switch tenor and soprano like we did this morning in alto and bass, sing your regular parts. No, ready, follow the path of Jesus. Walk where his footsteps lead. Keep in his beaming presence every counsel he. Watch while the hours are flying, ready some good to do. Quick while his voice is calling, yield obedience true. Tenors, cling to the hand of Jesus all through the day and night. Dark though the way and dreary, he will guide you right. Live for the good of others, helpless, oppressed, and wrong. Lift them from depths of sorrow, in his strength be strong. Everybody under 20, the singing tenor and soprano, keep those parts and the rest sing the melody. Go ready, take up the cross of Jesus, sharing the shame he bore, self and the world denying, love the Savior more. Tell all the world of Jesus, think of their gloom and loss. Tell of his great salvation, glory in his cross. Would you look on the sheets, and it's page one. Christ is full of love and power. You'll notice that the writer of the text was Christian Burkholder. Christian Burkholder's father <clears throat> had visualized um, moving out of this horrible situation to America, and he made the plans, but he died before he got on the boat. So the brave widow with her six children migrated to this country. Nine-year-old Christian 
was the oldest. I'm sorry, this was after this period. Uh, this was in the 1700s. I had that wrong. So the mother came here with her six children, and little Christian was nine years old when they came. And he grew up during the French and Indian War. It wasn't this. He grew up during the French and Indian War in this country. In 1770, he was ordained in Lancaster Conference as a preacher, and in 1780, he was ordained as a bishop. And he did much to establish new churches in the Lancaster area. In, 19, in 1790, the German Methodist revivals hit Pennsylvania, and Jacob Albright established the Evangelical Association. They began to hold revival meetings, which was very new to the Mennonites. Then those meetings were very emotional, lots of demonstration of emotion, fiery preaching. The Mennonites were not used to this. And the definition given to Christianity was that you had to have an emotionally defining moment. And if you'd never had one of those moments, and they described pretty thoroughly what that moment was like, then you probably could not really say that you'd ever been converted. So lots of Mennonites were joining this movement. And Christian Burkholder looked at it and he said, you folks, I don't agree with your definition. Christianity is not certified by an emotionally defining moment. It's certified by a commitment to Christ and obedience to him and a miracle taking place that changes hatred to love, impurity to purity, dishonesty to honesty, selfishness to, to liberality. And if those things are happening in your life, they really are happening, that's the proof that you're a Christian and was able to save many people to the, that, from joining this movement. Now, you don't live in Pennsylvania, but we have in Pennsylvania the United Brethren. How many have ever heard of the United Brethren Church? Well, all the people who joined that movement, that's where they are. That's where their descendants are. I talked this morning about wisdom, being able to make a good decision. This man wrote a tract called a, An Appeal to Youth for True Repentance, in which he countered this emotionally defining moment concept of, of certainty that you were a Christian. And so many people in Lancaster County today, many people in the conservative Mennonite Church have this man to thank that their ancestors did not join that movement. So this is his song. It's the only song he wrote. Verse 2, giving him our heart's affection, true and upright we should be. This way leads us to perfection because that German Methodist movement had Wesley's doctrine of sinless perfection in it, that you could have an emotionally defining moment that eradicated your sin nature and then you didn't sin after that. And he said, wait a minute, this way leads to perfection, leads to God with certainty. May I ever till life closes to my maker faithful stay, never more with unhoned conscience insincerity display. May I never shrink nor waver from the words of Christ so true. Unto righteousness they lead us, granting us salvation too. All my speech, my deeds, my thinking, all to him I completely give. To his will now fully yielding all my being as I live. Love to God, of God continue burning, penetrating mind and heart. May your presence strong constraining, light eternal now in part. We have time for one verse because I want to tell one more story. Would you give me three more minutes? <laughs> okay. Let's just sing uh, two verses of this. Let's sing uh, verses uh, uh, one and four. <clears throat> Don't so Christ is full of love and power, full of glory, light, and grace. He refreshes those whose sorrow fills their hearts with joy and peace. Verse 4, may I never shrink nor waver from the words of Christ so true. Unto righteousness they lead us, granting us salvation too. I'm sorry, we don't have time to do justice to these papers. Would you look on page two, the back side of page one? <clears throat> this will be a gospel song, but this one, is, this one is especially meaningful because George A. Young was a pastor and uh, was a pastor all his life, never had much money, but he and his family dreamed someday of having their own little house that they could call their own. And so throughout his entire ministry, this man scrimped and saved, and his family helped him to get together enough money to finally build a very modest little house. And they were so happy to have a place to live that was their own. One day, they, not too long after they built the house, they hadn't lived in it very long until they took a trip somewhere. He was a minister that traveled. The whole family went with him, and when they came home, the house wasn't there. It had been burned to the ground. Apparently, somebody who did not like his message decided to 
have that kind of revenge. And so the house was gone. This song is his response to that experience. In shady green pastures so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the water's cool flow bathes the weary one's feet, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire. He's talking about that house fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. I never sing this song without thinking of this man with this little house that went through the fire. We'll close with this song, and then I'll open it up for any questions you have. Sorry for the couple minutes of time. Let's sing uh, <clears throat> verses 1 and 3. Though in shady green pasture so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the water school flow bathes the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. Verse 3. Though sorrows befall us and Satan oppose, God leads his dear children along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters, some through the flood. Some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. The purpose of this message was to convince you that there's a whole wealth of songs that we dare not lose to the present movement that wants to sing only those songs that have been written in the last 50 years. Now, does anybody have any questions? Sorry, there's, there are more stories to tell, but uh, I'd, I'd keep you too long. Come to music camp and take hymnology, <laughs> and we'll talk more about the, the hymns. Well, maybe if I sit down, you'll feel a little more free to say what you have to think. And, uh...